Anybody else appreciate that? Yes. The Presbyterians among us were like, yes. And the Methodists. <laughs> All the Baptists are like, what are we singing right now? Just kidding. Thank you, Jamie, for continually bringing hymns um, as we worship. It's just an enormous blessing to be able to sing, as Jamie so articulately said, these words that have been written for generations that declare and reflect our faith. I, uh, like maybe many of you, uh, was addicted to the show Lost. Anybody else? Clap if you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know the ending was controversial. You know, there's some who are like, are you serious? And then there's people who are like, that is the most profound ending like to a TV show. Regardless, I, I want to bring you back, as I sat there, to the very last scene. And those of you that are not familiar with the show, just, just play along with us today. It's the last scene where Jack, who is one of the main characters, of course, and the rest of the folks that have been on the island are in church. And, and Jack and his dad, Christian, have a conversation. And it goes like this. Jack says, are you real? And Christian is asked, says, I sure hope so. Yeah, I'm real. You're real. Everything that's happened to you is real. All those people in the church, they're all real too. And Jack says, no, they're all, they're, they're all dead. I'm dead. You're, you're dead. And Christian says, everyone dies sometimes, kiddo. Some of them before you, some long after you. And Jack says, but, but why are we all here now? And Christian says, well, there is no now here. So Jack says, where are we, Dad? And then his dad says the following, and I'm going to put it up there on the screen. This is the place that you. That you all made together so that you could find one another. The most important part of your life was the time that you spent with these people on that island. That's why all of you are here. Nobody does it alone, Jack. You needed all of them. And they needed you. <laughs> this stupid show got me emotional just thinking about it again. Sorry. Just Did that resonate with you? It did to me. And the reason why is whether you're actually religious or Christian or spiritual or not, we'd all relate because there's this profound longing in our hearts to know that we are part of something larger with a group of people. Amen? And see, I was reminded this week on the need or the importance of community. See, so as I am trying to follow Jesus, one of the things that I am saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I am saying yes to your right to interrupt my life. And, and Jesus is actually answering that prayer. So as I go about the week, I am finding that Jesus is interrupting my, you know, normal daily routine with people who are saying, hey, can we get together this week? I met with a brother in our church whose wife has cancer and the cancer has taken a turn for the worse. I reached out to him and said, how are you doing? He reached out and said, hey, I'm okay and felt the spirit say, spend some time with him. So I said, can we have coffee? And so on a Friday when I normally set aside time to prepare my sermon, I carved out some time to, to sit with my brother. And I think I told you guys as we started the sermon series, I don't care if I don't preach as fine as sermons. I want to be in community with people and disciple people in relationship. Then on Saturday, a brother who didn't know was going to be coming came into town and he lost his mom four months ago to cancer. And he attended our church for like three and a half years moved to Southern California and he texted on a Saturday, and Saturday is when I'm like, I just need to be alone and just kind of think and, and, and have space to just ponder. And he said, hey, can we have coffee? So I was like, yeah. So Saturday, yesterday, met up with him for coffee. I just was present for a couple hours. I've taught you guys this for many years if you've been coming. 
Community is like air that we breathe. You don't appreciate air. You and I don't appreciate, you're sitting here, you're breathing, you don't appreciate air. You know when you appreciate air is when you're under water. When you feel like you can't breathe, that's when you appreciate air. You will not appreciate community until you're emotionally under. When you feel like, I can't breathe. But I always tell you guys this. If when you're emotionally under and you can't breathe, if you don't have built-in community there to catch you, it's too late. You can't in that moment of being emotionally under say, okay, now I need community support system. Who will be life to me? So can you, can you, can It is at that point that the relationships that you've built, the people that you've needed and people have needed you, it's when they who you've walked with are there to say, you could breathe. So my question to you and me today is simple, which is, do you have people? built in because you've invested, you've walked with, that are there when you are emotionally under them? And if not, what do you need to do to get there? What do I need to do to get there? Do you have those people in your life? This is an amazing community to which you could find that, but it takes intentionality, it takes effort, it takes us being vulnerable and putting ourselves out there too. A follower of Jesus is someone who not only follows Jesus, invites others to follow Jesus, but it's following Jesus in what? In community. Man, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that community and walking with Jesus and walking with others is something that would be normal and natural part of our lives. Amen? Amen. Come on. So this is a reminder to you because we're going to be talking about this as we continue this series. But I hope it's like a gut check and it's kind of an evaluative thing this morning for some of us. Like, do I have that community or am I surrounded by a bunch of superficial relationships? Who are the people that when I am going through stuff, I could immediately turn to? And I was encouraged once again this week that there are folks in our church who are finding that and we praise God for them. We're talking about discipleship, if you are new and been recently coming, and we're calling it Follow Me, and we realize that discipleship is not just something that we do for a season ends. It's a lifelong journey, isn't it? It's a lifelong journey to follow Jesus, invite others to follow Jesus, and follow Jesus in the community. It's a lifelong, we never quite, quite get there. And I was just thinking about this this week, you guys. You realize that you and I are being discipled every day? What do I mean? We're being taxable every day, every day by very powerful forces and systems, what Jesus once referred to as the kingdom of this world. So let's not be naive in thinking, you know, discipleship is this Christian thing, is this church thing. You and I are being discipled, taught every day where to find meaning, where to find purpose, where to find identity, where to find worth. Let me say that again. We are being discipled every single day once we walk out of here by a system that is teaching us where those things are found. And I would argue, I would argue because of the culture we live in, that we are being taught every day, discipled every day to find meaning, purpose, identity, and worth by consuming products. We are being discipled every, by, every day by a power. Our entire economic system is based upon mandated consumption. Billions of dollars are spent every single day through ad media technology to get you to go, I need, I want, I don't have. And those things aren't just, they, we think through those things, we are finding these things that we're ultimately longing for meaning, purpose, and life, and truth, and identity. Every single day we are being discipled either by Jesus or we are being discipled by the kingdom of this world. Church, are you with me? And these are powerful forces powerful forces subconsciously and consciously that are teaching, discipling us every day about where life and meaning and purpose is found. This is why I've said 
Consumerism is, I think, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, hindrance to following Jesus in our culture. It's not atheism. It's not another religion. It's consumerism. Because at the end of the day, the foundational point of consumerism says it's all about me. And the crux of the gospel is what? No, you deny yourself and you carry the cross and follow me. Every single person in America, North America, Western context, when you come into the church, you are coming to a head-on collision with someone who says, my way of discipleship is diametrically opposed to the discipleship of the world. This is why it's hard. This is why it's difficult. This is why it requires death. Discipleship, following Jesus, Renewed conversation on discipleship, I find it interesting. More recently, 10, 15 years, churches are talking about discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. And as I've been saying for weeks, you guys, a lot of it is because for decades, we've had this make a decision theology where people think you become a Christian by praying a prayer or, 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 or doing something like, you know, I'm inviting Jesus into my life. And although those things can make you a follower of Jesus, Following Jesus makes you a follower of Jesus. And we've been saying for weeks that it's about our whole life commitment to the whole person of Jesus. It's about following Jesus with the entirety of who he is and obeying everything that he taught. It's about practicing and living out our faith. And for the last two weeks, we began this journey now pivoting and saying, disciple is someone who also invites others to follow Jesus. Being a disciple, making disciples are intricately linked. Inviting Jesus, uh, following Jesus, inviting others to follow Jesus is intricately linked. In the scripture in the New Testament, you cannot divorce. I want to be a disciple, but I don't want really to make disciples. If you're a disciple, you are inevitably intentionally making disciples. They go together. They go together. So if you and I are not making disciples, the question has to be asked, am I a disciple? Am I a disciple? And you and I just, we need to just sit with that, you guys. We need to just sit with that and say, am I making disciples? Because that's what a disciple of Jesus does. So last week we began this journey looking at what's known as the Great Commission. And what I want to do today is kind of finish laying this 30,000 foot theological perspective of what making disciples looks like. And in the next two, three weeks, we've got some amazing speakers who will add flesh then to how do you do this and what does it look like. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And we didn't start with verse 18, we started with verse 16, because for those of us that grew up in church, we'd immediately go to, therefore, all authority, we say, we want to go right to make disciples, but there's a context to the Great Commission. There's a context that makes sense of the Great Commission. There's a context that gives weight to the Great Commission, and we start off in verse 16. Here we go. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Brief review from last Sunday. Why does Matthew... Highlight 11. What's that precious? <laughs> In case you didn't hear, this is precious. It's like, you know, Judas, the guy got kicked out. And last week you said, are you Judas? And we were like, ah! Why does, why does Matthew highlight? Because here's the three. He is wanting to highlight there is a disciple missing. And the reason why he highlights it is, and, and yes, precious, it, it ought to hit us. He, we're talking about Judas, one of the 12 who spent three and a half years with Jesus. He was there for every miracle. He was there for every teaching. He was there for every second and minute of doing life with Jesus. And yet, Judas didn't know Jesus. And yet, Judas certainly wasn't a follower of Jesus. And this ought to be sobering for us. This isn't any way to go, are you a Christian in some self-righteous, arrogant way? None of us, none of us will do that. But it is sobering to go, just because we're in church doesn't mean we're following him. Just because we're in small groups doesn't mean we're following him. Just because we're doing good things doesn't mean we're following him. And church, I got to say this, I got to say this. Can we be that community that without Without an ounce of self-righteousness or arrogance, without an ounce of it, because the cross removes and drains it from us. Can we be that community that will challenge each other in this way and saying, are you following him? Are you following him? Are you following him? 
I said this last week, it is possible to know about Jesus and not know Jesus. Many of us know about Jesus, but we don't. And also, there's danger in thinking. Oh, there's danger in thinking that you're growing spiritually when all that's happening is you're being affected by an environment. Look, no no pastor would say this, but your pastor is crazy, so I'm going to say this. There are some of you in our church who left some other church and you're here and you like it. Things are exciting. Pastor yells. Worship is great. And all these things. And you're thinking, I'm growing. There's something happening. No, you're not. You might be, but you also might be just being influenced by an environment and not actually growing. How do you actually grow? You have to take ownership for your own spiritual life. We live in a culture of rampant, what I call secondhand spirituality. That is, the way I grow, I listen to sermons, podcasts. The way I grow, I go to small groups. The way I, those are all good things. But at some point, you have to learn how to feed yourself. So some of you are here, and you go, man, I'm not really growing here. That's a, so my question to you is, what are, you, what are you doing about it? Are you taking ownership of your spiritual life and your growth? Are you taking ownership of that? Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And that word doubt, <laughs> I laugh because I told you guys, what I didn't want to do in the summer series is for you to go, doubt, ditazo. In Greek, that's what, oh, that's so good. Go to small groups. Did you hear that? Ditazo, doubt. What did you think of that? That you guys would just learn and be educated? My, my amen choir, Carlton, isn't here today for me to say this. So I need some of y'all to, we are educated way beyond our what? Obedience. <laughs> Who did that? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, Oh, MG, oh my Lord. <laughs> this is being videotaped. Carlton, I hope you see that and get a good laugh out of it. Ditazo literally means to waver, to be hesitant about a course of action. And we saw that briefly last week. They're not doubting Jesus. This is the fourth time Jesus has appeared to his disciples. John chapter 20, John chapter 20, twice with Thomas now, 21 with all the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. They're not doubting the deity of Jesus. He's risen from the dead. What are they doubting? They're doubting what? I think themselves. They're saying, we're going we're gonna to go out and do what? Didn't he say that we'd be like sheep among wolves? Didn't he say that we're going to be persecuted? The world is going to hate us if they hated him first? How are we going to? And it's in this context. Listen, it's in this context of them doubting, of them fearful, that you need to feel the weight of verse 18. Then, it's then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Is this good news? This is someone who just conquers Satan, sin, and death. This is someone who says in the gospel to the wind, the waves, and the storm, be still. And the wind, and the waves, and the storm actually obey. This is someone who says to a dead man, come forth, Lazarus. And a dead body is resurrected from the dead. This is someone from whom the demons fly. It was, it was Halloween. So I thought about this. I, I grew up hating horror movies. I still do. Amen, yes. But I don't know what got into me and how, but I wound up watching the movie Exorcist. Does anybody remember? <laughs> Exorcist. Okay. Now, which one? I stopped with Exorcist 1, okay? I didn't need to see any more. And actually, you, you guys know, and, and there's other scenes repeated like this. You know, some, somebody is demon-possessed, right? And what, is it, what happens? A priest, right, with a Bible and a cross go, right? And there's this, there's this confrontation in the demon, the head spinning, and they're, you know, spilling things out, and there's soup flying in the air. And the priest is certainly going, in the name of Jesus, and, 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 and nothing's happening. They're arguing back and forth. That never happened to Jesus in the Gospels. When Jesus confronted a demon and said, flee, there was never an instance where the demon said, make me. 
When Jesus said, flee, the demons fled. When Jesus has shut it, the demons shut it. This is someone who has power over demons. Man, that is such good news. This is someone who says all authority. Now, here's the thing. We could just hear something like that and go, yeah, he has all authority. Think of how powerful this is when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has given to me. That means Jesus' authority over all nature. Jesus' authority over all disease. Jesus' authority over all devastating death. Jesus has authority over all evil, all injustice. Jesus has authority, I want to say this morning, over all addictions. Jesus has authority over our fears, over our worries, over anxieties. Jesus has authority over every single thing that affects us. Is this good news, church? We worship the one who says, I have all authority. Now there's a word of encouragement and challenge real quick. The word of encouragement is this, and this is the mind-boggling thing about Christianity. This person who says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, now lives inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. See, you and I don't even know what to do with that, do we? This person who we just talked about, who has all authority in heaven and earth, says in Acts 1, what? But you'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and that is how you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, ends of the earth. We have inside of us the one who conquers Satan, sin, and death. We have inside of us the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. We have within inside of us the person who says, I have all authority. That means that when we go make disciples, we don't go in our power, but his power. We don't go in our authority, but his authority. That means, church, we are not limited by us. We are limited by what God can do. And I'm going to tell you something. God says, nothing is impossible with me. This is such an enormous encouragement to me that you and I have been given the equipment to go make disciples. It's not our smarts, ingenuity. Then there's a word of challenge, though. The word of challenge with this is this. Think about this. I think when Jesus said all the thoughts, I think there were some folks who were like, okay, because I was raring to go. Let's go. Let's do this. We could, he, Peter, I think, was one of them, right? Peter's like, we don't, we just need to, and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 Peter, you need my spirit or else you're going to go and wreck this whole thing, all right? So I need you to wait for the spirit to come. Do you know why this is so convicting for me? Because I wonder, listen to this, I wonder if in North America, if the Holy Spirit left our churches, anything would change. I wonder if we've set up all of our ministries in such a way that if the Holy Spirit were to leave, we would just continue. Think about this with me. Think about this, Susan. We live in a culture. We've got money. We've got resources. We've got talents, education, and gifts. I wonder if we're doing ministry in such a way, if the Holy Spirit were removed, that nothing would be different. Church, maybe the grace hindrance to this country experiencing a spiritual renewal is not sexual sins or immorality or unbelief. Maybe it's our attempt to do ministry apart from the Holy Spirit. Your new community. I'm sorry. We are new community. Yes, some of y'all looked at me and gave me a dirty look. Okay. We are new community. There is education here. There is resources here. There are all kinds of things. You know what my fear is? My fear is that you will depend on you and not the Holy Spirit to do God's work. My fear is that you will think you're smart enough, that you're talented enough, that you have enough resources. Because I'm going to tell you right now, no amount of gift, talents, and abilities, apart from the Holy Spirit, will do anything. But give me a small group of uneducated, uncultured, poor, without resources people, empowered by the Spirit of God, and they will shake the nations. They will shake the nations. It happened back then. It happened now. You know what my prayer is? My prayer is that we would be so dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to make disciples that if the Holy Spirit were to be removed from this church, everything would collapse. 
my prayer. Church, are you with me this morning? Are you with me? That you and I will be so dependent on the Holy Spirit knowing we can't change anybody. We can't save anybody. We can't cause anybody to grow. We can't heal anybody. But in Christ Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, all those things are possible and then some. May we be a church that is so dependent on the Holy Spirit that if the Holy Spirit were to be moved from us, that everything would collapse around here. May that be our posture. Lord, may that be our posture. Then we come to verse 19. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We're going to look at the rest of the verses, but let me make a comment here. All nations that were literally, again, I'm doing the whole Greek thing. Just take note of it and then do something about it, okay? All nations. Pantata ethne. When the Bible talks about nations, it's not talking about geopolitical geopolitical entities, what we think of as countries. It's talking about what people call ethno-linguistic groups or people groups, of which there are 17,104 in the world. India alone has 2,600 people groups. Let me pause here and say this. This is what I'm going. It's amazing how in this age of tribalism, we take what the Bible says is both and, and then we create either or. In this day of tribalism, we love saying, we love taking what God clearly says, both and and either or. So let me be really clear. It's not either global or local. It's both global and local. Can I get an amen? It's not either personal sin or systemic sin. It's both personal sin and systemic sin. It's not either give or go. It's both give and go. It's not either proclamation or demonstration. It's both proclamation and demonstration. Are you with me? So we want to make sure that when we read the Bible, we're saying it's both and, not an either or. Having said that, let me talk a little bit about it's both global and local. Did you know that there are 17,104, as I mentioned, people groups in the world but there are 7,000, this is according to Joshua Project, 162 unreached people groups in the world. Unreached people groups are people groups where there are less than 2% Christians. And listen to this, they will be born, live, and die without ever having an opportunity to hear the gospel. When you put the 7,000 plus people groups together, Here's how many people in the world will live, die, without having an opportunity to hear the gospel. 3.19 billion people. Over 3 billion people. Church, over 3 billion people don't have access. could be born and live and die without having have an opportunity to hear the good news. As I was preparing this, this was since God saying, God saying, Peter, there are some in new community who are called to the unreached people groups. We're a church that focuses very much on local, but there is a sense in which I sense God going, there are people who I'm going to call to the unreached people group. By the way, 80% of these people are in what's called the 1040 window, which is vast part of the Middle East. If you are someone who's been called to the Middle East or unreached people groups, here's what I need you to do. I need you to come up and talk to me after the service. Can you do that? And here's my challenge to us. My challenge to us is that there might be some of us who will be called by God and say yes to his call to reach the unreached people groups in the world. Global. And though, it's also local. Did you know that the nations or the people groups are our neighbors? Did you know that? Can I show you a statistic? This is one university in Chicago. One university in Chicago. UIC. UIC. UI, this is UIC statistics. Here's what you find at UIC. This was absolutely mind-boggling to me when I saw this. UIC, there's a total of 4,397 international students representing 100 countries, and they make up 15% of the total student population. This is your, these are people you live next to. These are people you work with. These are people you go to school with. The nations are, you walk out the door. 
You know what else UIC has? Look at the graduate students. Out of, out of the graduate students, 3,476 international graduate and professional students, they're almost 35% of all graduate students at UIC are from all over the world. And then there's a total of 768 international scholars representing 76 countries and territories. What I'm trying to say is this is one school, 10 minutes from us, just one school. And one school represents the nations. Is this an opportunity, church? So this is a great day for me to remind you that our mission to, to reflect the diversity of the kingdom of God in its multi-ethnic, multicultural aspect, the, 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 the basis of this foundation is grounded in the great commission to go make disciples of all nations. Let me put it this way. Our church is not going to reflect the kingdom, the beauty of the kingdom, of being a multi-ethnic, multicultural vision of the kingdom, Revelation 7. It's not going to happen because of the preacher. It's not going to happen because of the worship. It's going to happen when you obey the great commission to go make disciples of all nations. Can I say that again? If you are someone going, I want this church to be more multi-ethnic, more multicultural, me too, me too. But instead of sitting there going, well, why isn't the preaching, why isn't the worship? We want this to be hospitable for people from all over the world. But... The way that our church is going to reflect Revelation 5, every tribe, tongue, and nation, is not because of the preacher, it's not because of the worship. It is you saying, I am called to go make disciples of all nations. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Look at your circle of people. I don't talk about, are you doing that with them? You know, people, I go and talk to churches and leaders about multi-ethnic church. And inevitably somebody comes up at a white church or an Asian church, and somebody goes, you know, I disagree with you. Why do you say that every church needs to be multi-ethnic? I go, you misheard me. I don't say that every church has to be multi-ethnic. I say every church has to obey the Great Commission. And then I go, is your city diverse? Is your community diverse? There are some communities in our country where it's Lily White or some other, but if you live in a city, is it diverse? Then I ask him this. I go, then how do you explain your church being homogenous unless your people read Matthew 28, 19 as, and go and make disciples of people just like you? Somebody did this. Yeah. I'm going to say it again. Our church is not going to become multi-ethnic and reflect the diversity of the kingdom because of the preacher or the worship. We want to make this hospitable, yes, but it's going to be multi-ethnic when you, when you, you and me go out and make disciples of all nations. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Verse 19. Let's keep going. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So yeah, I could sit here and I could wax eloquently about there are two commands in this great commission, not one. The words go baptize and teach are participles that give flesh to what make disciples looks like. And all of you guys will be like, wow, that's really great news. I'm, I'm, my question is, are we going and doing something? Are we going to go and make disciples? Are we going to go and make disciples? Or are we going to study it? Are we going to talk about it? Are we going to discuss it? Are we going to pray about it? Or are we actually going to obey the command to go and make disciples? So having said that, go make disciples. Theological, theological foundation, as I said this week, next week, and the week after, I have flesh to it. The word go. The word go. The word go has a sense of as you are going. Why is that important? Because discipleship is a lifestyle. Discipleship is a lifestyle. It's not destination. It's not, is it Africa or Alabama? One question. Discipleship, go, Jesus says, and it is as you are going. That is wherever, whenever, however, whatever. All of life, all of life. At work, at home, in between. Where I play, where I work out, everything in between. There's no secular spiritual divide in the kingdom. Everything is spiritual for the glory of God, amen? As you're going. Discipleship is not a class. Discipleship is not a course. Discipleship is a lifestyle. As you're going. As you're going, as you're going. 
discipleship. From the moment you wake up at five, six, whenever you get up in the morning, grab your cup of coffee, you get on the train, go to work, do your work at your workplace, you come home, everything in between, it's as you are going. You are looking for opportunities, make disciples for the glory of God. It is about a lifestyle. Do you know why this word is so resonant with me? Because in the word go, in the word go, there is, there is this thing that God has placed in our hearts. What do I mean? The word go, the word go connects with me because the word go reminds me that God says, I created you with a purpose. I created you with the kingdom assignment. I uniquely designed you to go and make disciples. Uniquely designed you to go make an impact for the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with having a good career. There's nothing wrong with finding Mr. and Mrs. Right. There's nothing wrong with making money. But if you live for those things, ultimately when you get there, it'll be empty. Do you know why? Because you and I were created for something larger than just our needs. I don't know you, but I know this about you. I'm telling you. A life lived for itself. A life lived for itself. All I care about, Peter, is getting a job. A life lived for itself. All I care about is getting married. All I, if that is the end of your dreams and ambitions, your life will feel meaningless, purposeless, and empty because you were designed by a creator that says, I created you for a larger purpose. I designed you with a larger purpose in life. God designed us such a way that our five-second lives, that's here today and like a mist disappears tomorrow, our five-second lives would matter, would matter for the kingdom, and that is it would be used in service of others and for other things than just us. You guys know this already. One of my, one of my most frustrating things that I hear from people who want to go, people go, I, I just want to be happy. Happiness is an, as an end is a dead end. You, 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 you are chasing, I just want to be happy, I just want to be, I'm, you're chasing something that you will never arrive at. Do you have something that you're living for that's larger than just you? Do you have something larger to live for than just getting that job, than getting married? Do you have something larger to live for than that? Our greatest fear in life should not be that we would fail, but that we would give our entire lives for something that at the end of the day will not matter. What do you want to look back 10, 20, 30 years from now and say, that was worth it? That was worth it. Go. And then Jesus says, of course, make disciples. Let's be clear that Jesus is not posing a question here. He's not approaching his disciples saying, hey, Nate, would you like to go make disciples? You're not approaching, you're not approaching, hey, hey, hey James, what, what, would you please go make some disciples? He's not doing that. He's saying what? He's saying go do it. It's not even a suggestion. It is one of the most clear-cut commands in all of the New Testament. You want to follow Jesus? One of the most clear ways that he said do this, he said go make disciples. And let's be clear, the disciples sitting there didn't sit there and go, what? Well, why would you want to do that? They didn't sit there and go, really, Jesus, of all the things? Why? Or they certainly didn't go, well, how do you? Why? Because for three and a half years, he modeled for them what he was now asking them to do. Parents, don't ask your children to do something that you're not emulating yourself. Don't, don't, because, because if you're going to ask someone to do something, then, then you need to live it, then you need to, to, to do it. And Jesus says, what I've done I need you to go do. The question of how did Jesus make disciples? Simple. Life on life. Life on life. Will you all say that with me? Life on life. One more time. Ready? Life on life. Let it just roll off your tongue. Ready? Life on life. Maybe we could sing about it. Life on life. Life on life. Life on life. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When do you think the disciples got it? When do you think disciples got it? And by the way, this answers the question of, is it evangelism? Is it discipleship? Do we evangelize non-Christians? And do we, when do you think disciples got it? When Jesus initially called them? No. Year like one and a half, two? 
When Peter goes, you are the Christ, and Jesus goes, whoa, I'm going to build my, is that when he got it? Because what happens a little bit down here, a little girl goes, don't you, don't you know him? He says, why? I, when do you think the disciples got it? You know, born again, beginning, middle, and when, when? In other words, Jesus, what? Disciple them before conversion, during conversion, after. It was all what? Disciple. Jesus did life with people who didn't believe. He discipled them. Jesus did life with people who go, I'm a Christian, but I don't know anything. He discipled them. Jesus did life with folks who say, I'm going to surrender my life and follow you. Disciple them. There is no dichotomy in the Gospels between evangelism and discipleship. It's all what? Discipleship. Is that helpful to anybody? It's all discipleship. It's just walking with someone on their journey. Walking with some life on life. And the reason why this is important, the reason why this works, and the reason why this is powerful is you know this. Discipleship isn't about imparting information. It's deeply relational. You don't make disciples until you're willing to open up your life, which is super hard for a very private, introverted person like me. But you have to open up your life, and then you have to invest in people. There's no way to disciple people unless you open up your life and you invest in some people. Life on life, relationship. People are able to see how Jesus makes a difference in your life. There's no way around it. Disciple is someone who follows Jesus and learns from Jesus how to live his life as if Jesus were to live your life if it were you. So when you're making disciples, you are letting someone in on how Jesus is making a difference in your life. You're modeling how Jesus makes a difference in your life for them. So that is how you make disciples. You open up your life and you invest. You open up your home. You invest. You open up your time and invest. You open up the entirety of who you are to do life with people. Now, I think Jesus understood a simple principle on why this is powerful. And that is this simple principle. More is caught than taught. So about two months ago, it was on a Saturday, <clears throat> and it was my turn to take Noah, my longest, to hockey practice. Jenny and I have a tight schedule, so we need to organize everything, work everything out. Well, it just so happened that Jenny put this on the calendar while we were on the East Coast, on her Google Calendar, which meant that, yeah, it was an hour, but head of where central time was, right? And she didn't know that. I, I don't even know that. I am technologically the most idiotic person in the world, okay? So, but we get to the hockey rink and nobody's there. Nobody's there. And I started getting really mad, really frustrated, because you know my time is valuable. <laughs> Such an idiot. Because you know my time is sacred. How dare Jenny sketch? So I'm sitting there. Right? So I text Jenny in my caps exclamation. <laughs> Angry face emoji, you know. What the heck? Finally, Jenny calls me, right? Calls me on my phone. What do I do? Like a good Christian husband pastor that I am. I just ignored it. I just ignored it. My son is sitting there. He's looking at my phone ringing. He's going, Daddy, it's mommy. I go, I know. Daddy, it's mommy. I go, I know, Noah. Well, he's like, aren't you going to pick up the phone? No. <laughs> so this is like 10 minutes into this now, right? Finally, finally, I pick up the phone, right? I pick up the phone. I pick up the phone. Your pastor's almost 50 years old. Been a pastor for 30 years. I pick up the phone, and I gave it to my nine-year-old son. <laughs> Daddy doesn't want to talk to you, mommy. <laughs> It goes back and forth. Finally, hang up. And I'll never forget what Noah said to me. He looks at me and he says, so daddy, not joking seriously, he goes, so daddy, so next time I get into a fight with Sophie, I could ignore her too, right? So next time I get into a fight with Sophie, his words, not, I could do what you did to mom, right? If you're a parent, you know this. It's amazing how they pick up our sinful tendencies and not our good tendencies. 
Parents, can you clap? Can I get an amen? It's amazing. It's amazing how the sinful things that we do, our kids, like, they memorize it, right? Some of the good things. In all seriousness, this, this happens because so much of our teaching is by observation and modeling. Soren Kierkegaard talks about the communication of existence. He says, when you say something is true, but your life doesn't reflect it, then your life says it's not true. It's like someone said, your life is speaking so loudly that I can't hear a single thing. What? That you're saying. Do you know why we talk about embodied faith? We talk about, do you know what embodiment literally means? It's bringing our bodies, our lives to bear the message. It's bringing the totality of who we are, our bodies, to live the message. And when you do that, there's power. When you do that, there's authority. Do you know why? The word authority in Greek is exousia. Two words, ex, out of, susia, yourself. Authority comes out of yourself. What do I mean? A lived life out of yourself has authority. You don't get spiritual authority from degrees. You don't get spiritual authority from position. Donald Trump has power. Mother Teresa had authority. And Jesus, the religious leader, constantly saying, by what, what? By what authority are you doing this? When you embody your faith, there is authority. There's power. How did Jesus disciple life on life? Modeling. Let me just quickly go through some examples. Looks like you guys are going to get out of here earlier today. <laughs> Let me give you some examples of how Jesus did this. Again, I'm just laying a biblical foundation. We'll get to Luke 11.1. 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples how to pray. Jesus said, and this is how you should pray. Do you know why we have the Lord's Prayer today? Think about this. Our Father, do you know why we have the Lord's Prayer today? Because his disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Why did his disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray? They what? They saw him pray. They watched Jesus commune with his Father. And they saw the power, the beauty, the magnetic thing that came out of his communion with the Father. You can just imagine, he coming down from the mountain, the disciples are like, whoa, boom, something happened. And after watching Jesus, they go, we want to do what you do. Teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, this is how you ought to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let me ask you something. Is there anybody in your life that's watching you communion with your Father? Is anybody watching your life to see how Jesus makes a difference in your life? A couple more. Luke 9.1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them the power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Discipleship isn't just I do and you watch. It's what? Now you go do what you saw me do. All the things that Jesus tells them to do in Luke 9 are the things that he did. Proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons. And Jesus says, now that you've seen me model it, now it's your turn to do it. And Luke 9 ends with the disciples coming back with joy. Life on life, modeling, hands-on training. It wasn't just Jesus, other New Testament writers. Let me give you two more examples real quick. Paul and Timothy, it's a relationship where modeling, life on life, Life on life resulted in essentially the reason why you and I are here today. 1 Corinthians 4.15. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So I urge you to imitate me. Paul understands discipleship. It's they need to see a model of what it's like to follow Jesus. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then verse 17. That's why I have sent Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. Paul, Paul, Paul. You, you, just, you just asked us to imitate you. Why are you sending Timothy? This is so good. Are you with me so far? Paul says, imitate me. And then he goes, 
I'm going to send Timothy to you. And then look what he says in verse 17. This is so amazing. He, Timothy, will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. Paul is saying, I have so reproduced myself in Timothy that when you see him, it's like seeing me. Do you have anyone like that? Do you have anyone that you could confidently say, oh, you want me to go? I don't need to go. I'm going to send so-and-so. Because everything that I am, they are, and then some. It's amazing. And then one more, one more. Second Timothy, now he's writing to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be quality to each other. This is, and we're going to talk more about this, the essence of multiplication reproduction. Paul is always saying, I learned from Jesus, and I taught you Timothy. Now, Timothy, as you learn from me, you teach someone else. And by the way, make sure that those people who learn from you will teach them. If Paul had not reproduced, there would be no New Testament churches. If there are no New Testament churches, you and I would be not be here today. I said this last week, and some of you guys didn't believe me, so I'm going to say it again. If I die tomorrow... I'm sorry, my wife hates it when I say stuff like this, okay? So, Jenny, I'm sorry. I'm apologizing in advance. I have two ambitions in life. You know what that is? Let me be clear. When I'm done with my kingdom assignment here on earth, I want God to take me home. I don't do this well perfectly, but if I'm done with my kingdom assignment here, there are no pleasures in this world that I want to stick around for. I'm saying, God, take me home. Take me home. Secondly, if and when I am done and the work that I did collapses, I didn't fulfill God's kingdom assignment. The work that I'm doing needs to continue way after I'm done. Are you with me, church? Do you know what I had a vision of as I thought about this? I had a vision, Nate, of your daughter, Charlotte, discipling her kids. That this would be generational impact. So yeah, if I'm done here and this thing collapses, which it won't, Nate, then I have failed in my kingdom assignment. I want the work that I do to continue long after I'm gone because it's not about Peter Hong. It's about God's glory. Don't you want your work to continue long after you're gone? Is it about you or is it about God's glory? Please, I beg you for no other reason, make disciples so that the work that you're doing will have generational impact long after you're gone. For God's glory. For God's glory. Somebody asked me, he said, Peter, can you give me the best discipleship material? You know what I said? And here's a sermon, sermon point. You are the best discipleship curriculum. You. They don't need a handbook. They don't need a manual. They need you and your life. You are the best discipleship curriculum. Can I get an amen? You are. Your life. Your life. Your life. Your life. Your life. So here's the question. Who are the people in your life right now, this is convicting, that are watching your life to see how following Jesus makes a difference? Who are the people in your life right now can you name any? Is there one? Is there two? Is there five? Is there ten? Can you, by the way, parents, if you're sitting there going, well, yeah, my kids, I almost want to go, you don't get bonus points for that. Because we should be absolutely be discipling our children as a given. Can I get an amen? And our spouses. I don't want to knock that. That's important. It's critical. But I would hope and pray that those of us that are married would be able to go, it's not just my family, but there are other people in my life that I am pouring into. Can you, if I were, we're not going to do this, but if I said take out a pen and write down on that paper the names of people that are watching your life right now to learn what it means to follow you, can you name any? Does anybody come to mind? Kevin, come on up here. Let me end with this. Your pastor's going to get practical. Ooh. Practical. First is pray. If you are somebody sitting there going, okay, as I was for years, if you're someone sitting there going, 
Ah, oh, disciple, I can't think literally of any, you know, I'm doing some good work, but I can't think, Peter, of any. I would say pray because I guarantee you this is a prayer that God answers. Your prayer to say, God, I want to invest. God, I want to pour out. God, I want to be able to share my life and do life on life with a group of people. Please send me. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens by divine appointment. I believe with all my heart that when you pray and say, God, I'm available, I'm surrendered, who can I do that with? God will make it clear to you. Secondly, as you pray, pay attention. What do I mean? Pay attention to people that are hungry spiritually. Pay attention to people that seem to be, to, be, to be interested in wanting to grow. Listen, let me be really, really careful how I say this. Okay, really care. Absolutely care for and love people who have no interest in Jesus, no interest in following him. Not, just, absolutely, when they're in need, care for them and love them. Having said that, I think it's just wisdom to look and go, who among me is growing? Who among me is hungry? Who is spiritually... Pay attention to people that God the Spirit is at work in and saying, who, God, who is, who, who, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, man, she, she's hungry to grow. Uh, he's hungry. Pay attention to people that are showing signs that I want to grow, I want to change, I want to be a follower of Jesus. But most importantly, third, behold. I told you there are two commands in the Great Commission. Most of us grew up thinking, make disciples. Uh uh, there's two. You know what the second command is? It's in verse 20. After he says, and teach them to obey everything I told you, he says, now, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Church, please, please give me one. Behold. See, this making disciples thing, it can't be done out of guilt. It can't be done out of, oh, he yelled at me for two hours. It can't be done out of that. It has to be born out of, God, I am beholding the beauty of your glory, and I am passionately pursuing you, Jesus, and want to passionately invite others to follow you. Can I get an amen? John sees Jesus, the same thing. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He gets it. Here is where I get power, motivation, energy, and passion to make disciples. It's not religious reasons. It's not because of I'm forced to. It is because I have beheld the fact that he lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And who would do that for me? God, you are so good. I can't help but make disciples for Jesus' glory. Behold the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because I was forsaken for you. Behold the one who says, I will never ever abandon you because I was abandoned for you. Behold the one who says, there is nothing, neither angels nor demons, heaven or earth, neither our worries for today and anxieties for tomorrow can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Making disciples is an overflow of being disciple church I implore you I implore you in the next weeks as we talk about what is making disciples don't get this twisted begin 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 by beholding the goodness beholding the beauty beholding the wonder beholding the majesty of who Jesus is and what he has done let that capture your heart let that melt your heart let that so convict your heart that you will go out there and saying God use me father that is our prayer that is my prayer that we would behold that we would behold and be riveted by the gospel. That we would behold and be riveted by your love. We would behold and by riveted, be riveted by your love for the world. That we would behold who you are and what you've done and your promise to say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you to the very end of the age. May that be our power, our anchor, our hope, our joy as we pray as we pay attention behold 
the next minute as Jamie and the worship team comes up to lead us in this closing song. If you are someone who has immediately names and faces of people in your life, family, workplace, in church, that you're going, these are the people that are watching me right now and learning what it means to follow Jesus, pray, pray, pray that you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do His work and not you. And for those of us, as we sit here like, God, I don't even know where to begin. This isn't even on my radar as a follower of Jesus. God, what? Pray. Lord, send people into my life. Help me to observe and notice people already in my life who are hungry to grow, who are wanting to learn and follow Jesus. Pray that God would send them into your life. He'll answer that, you know. He'll answer that.